You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, the 8th chapter. We're going to read together verses 31 through 38. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Let's pray together. Our Father, Your Word is truth, and it is our desire that our hearts and our minds, our wills might be conformed to Your truth, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ and sanctified by Your truth. There are certain things which Your Word reveals to us which are inherently offensive to modern men and to the natural man, certainly. And we come across one of those truths today, and we pray that though it is offensive to us in our sinfulness, that we might bow before its truth and that we might be people of the book and not people whose theology and thinking is driven by reason or by man's philosophy or wisdom, but by the truth of your word, that you would be glorified in and through your people as we submit to your truth and acknowledge what you say is true. We ask that you would give us understanding in these things and conform us to the image of Christ this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, last week I did introduce a very offensive subject contained in John 8:24, or sorry, 8:34, and that is the truth of man's depravity. There, are, it is difficult to think of any subject that is probably more offensive to the unregenerate, unredeemed, sinful human being than the truth that they are sinners. The sheer scope and depth and extensiveness of man's depravity and his lostness because of the fall is something that none of us this side of the veil will be able to fully appreciate. Uh, As we grow in grace, we grow in our understanding of just how sinful we were when God saved us. And nobody on this side of eternity really truly appreciates that because there there is something about being told that we are slaves of sin and that we are sinners that is offensive to the natural man. Uh, Slaves do not like to be told that they are slaves, and slaves of sin do not appreciate being told that they are slaves of sin. Those who are sinners do not appreciate being called sinners, because that implies that there is something wrong with them that needs to be corrected, something that they cannot change. And Jesus, when he told the Jews that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, he was implying that they were in fact slaves, And they responded to that truth the same way that people today will respond to that truth. They will say, what, me, a slave? Who who are you talking to 
Who do you think you're talking to, to use language like that, to call me a sinner and a slave? Because man, this Bible says, will always affirm his own goodness. Man always has a higher view of himself than he ought to have. No matter how low your view of your nature, your corruptness and your fallenness is or was, it's not even close to what it really, truly was. Man always has a higher view of himself than he ought to have. So it is an offensive truth, but it is an important truth because the doctrine of what is wrong with man and sin is a foundational plank in the gospel. You cannot fully appreciate the nature of what God has done for you in Christ if you do not understand the nature of how fallen and wicked and wretched and depraved you really were when God saved you. And if you think that you were spanky and the best thing since sliced bread and that you were the greatest thing in the world, and but you can't believe that to be saved, if that is your view of yourself and, and your view of yourself is something, you know, I just I was really a good person, but I just needed somebody to pay my sin debt then your appreciation for salvation is going to be very small because he who has been forgiven much loves much and he who has been forgiven little loves little. We really need to have a biblical understanding of what we were in our flesh, in our sinfulness, if we are to really appreciate the nature of what God has done for us in Christ. And when we understand what we were, then we fully appreciate what God has done in rescuing us from that. So that's what we're looking at today in John 8, verse 34. Last week, I just kind of introduced the gravity of this, and we observed just basically three things to introduce this from the text. John 8, 34, we observed that Jesus here is describing unbelievers, not believers. When he says everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, he is not describing believers. He is describing unbelievers. It is not the individual act of sin which constitutes me as a slave to sin, because Christians sin. We all sin. So it's not my... I committed a sin, therefore I am a slave of sin. Jesus uses a tense of the verb that means to continue in an ongoing, unbroken pattern of habitual life sin. The one who remains or continues in this sinful behavior, that is to say the unbeliever, is himself the slave of sin. Second, Jesus is describing all unbelievers, not a special class of unbelievers. It's not just certain types of unbelievers that are slaves of sin. It is all unbelievers. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody is born a slave of sin. All unbelievers are slaves to sin. It's not just the sinner who is worse than me. By the way, do you know who the really bad sinners are? It's always somebody worse than me, right? It's the other guy. That's who the really bad sinners are. And that's how man justifies himself. He's a slave to sin, yeah, but not necessarily me. Because I don't do this sin, therefore I'm not a slave to sin. So he denies his slavery, his enslavement to sin, based upon his own view of his own Goodness. So Jesus describing unbelievers, he is describing all unbelievers, and then we saw that Jesus uses very clear, very strong language of slavery. He says everyone who commits sin is a doulos of sin, and that means a slave, a bond slave. A doulos was not an employee. A doulos was not somebody who came and went from the house, a servant, a maid servant, a hired hand, none of that. If Jesus wanted to describe sinners as being people who occasionally do bad things, and sort of enjoy it, then there was language that he could have used to do that. But Jesus uses the language that describes somebody who is a bond slave. He is a doulos. He is treated as property, not as a person in the eyes of the law. A doulos was. A doulos had no freedom, no autonomy whatsoever. No freedom. Nothing about a doulos was free. 
A doulos could not choose where he was going to work or when he was going to work or what he was going to do or when he would show up for work. A doulos was completely, absolutely, totally, comprehensively controlled and owned by its master. Who is the master in John 8.34? Sin. Who is the doulos? The unbeliever. The unbeliever is a bond slave of sin and the unbeliever is bound to do the will of its master without hesitation and without exception. That is the language that Jesus uses. That is the language used in the rest of the New Testament to describe sinners, unbelievers. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter calls false, pe- false believers those who promise freedom, sorry, false teachers, as those who promise freedom to other while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And then Peter says this, For by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. What is, by what is a false teacher overcome? Sin. A false teacher is a slave, a doulos of sin. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Romans 6, 6 says that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Now listen to the language of the rest of Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Romans 6.22 Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. So what is the condition of the natural man apart from regeneration? Is he a free being or is he a slave of something? He is a slave of sin. Now in spite of all of the biblical testimony that sin holds us captive, that sin so holds us captive that we are a doulos, we are bound to it, and we are unable to free ourselves because we are enslaved to it. Everything about us is enslaved to sin. In spite of that, Christians will still deny this truth and ignore it, and they will use terms like free will. You and I deny the truth of John 8.34 every time we talk about free will. Every time. Scripture doesn't talk about free will. Scripture says we are slaves of sin. The unbeliever is not free. The unbeliever is a slave. He is a slave to darkness. He is a slave to his sin. He is enslaved to his lusts. He is enslaved to his passions. He is enslaved to his flesh. He is enslaved to Satan. He is enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. He does not do the will of anybody but his master. And his master is sin, self, and Satan. And he has no autonomy whatsoever. And when you and I speak of free will... We deny the language of Scripture which speaks of our slavery to sin. We deny that truth. That is the teaching of John 8.34 that we looked at last week. And now we are going to continue this morning by looking at this doctrine known as total depravity. Jesus is describing nothing less than the doctrine of total depravity. This is the doctrine that, this is what theologians, how theologians refer to this doctrine that we are slaves of sin and that our depravity, our fallenness, Our corruption before God in our nature, in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts, all of it is continually and always and only wicked before God. That is the doctrine of total depravity. Sometimes it is called the doctrine of total inability because total inability really describes what depravity does to us. Depravity makes us unable. Man is unable to submit himself to the law of God. That's what Romans Romans 8 says. Man is unable to love God. He does not follow after God. He does not... Seek God. Man is unable to please God. He is unable to submit himself to the law of God or even his mind to the law of God. Man is unable to do all of that. Man is unable because his will 
his affections, his mind, his heart, and his nature are all slaves of sin. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, verse 65, Again I say unto you, for this reason I said unto you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. What is Jesus describing? He's describing inability. He's not describing the man, he's not saying the man has a lack of permission, as if God does not permit any man to come to him, but all men want to. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no man has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Why is man unable? Man is unable because his nature and his heart and his will and his affections and everything about him has been corrupted by the fall, so he lacks both the will and the power to come to God in and of himself. Total depravity means I am unable in myself to change my condition or to do anything that is pleasing before God. In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3, Solomon writes, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Jeremiah 17.9 describes the heart of man as more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick, wicked. Who can know it? No man can know the heart. You can't even know the wickedness or depravity of your own heart. We can't. In Romans 7 or 8, verses 7 and 8, the passage we read this morning, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God and it does not subject itself to the law of God because it's not even able to do so. You look at an unbelieving individual and their heart is not able to submit itself to the law of God. He lacks the ability to submit himself to God's will because he does not have the desire to do so. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, From within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Paul says, The natural man that is the man in his flesh without Christ, unregenerate, the natural man does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. An unbeliever cannot even understand spiritual things. That's total depravity. It is total inability. Unable to submit himself to the law of God, unable to repent, unable to change his heart, unable to correct his nature, unable to reform his behavior, unable to change his standing before God, unable to stop sinning, unable to do anything. He lacks the ability because man is dead in his trespasses and sins. So John chapter 6 tells us that man is unable. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No man is able to come to the Son unless the Father draws him. John chapter 8 tells us why man is unable. Why is man unable? Because everyone, comprehensively, who is in sin is the slave of sin, a doulos. He has no autonomy, no freedom. A doulos cannot choose whether or not he is enslaved. A do not doulos cannot set him free from his slavery. It is only when the Son sets us free that we are free indeed. That's Jesus in John 8, verse 36. If the Son makes you free, then you are free indeed. Jesus doesn't appeal to fallen man to set himself free. Jesus doesn't say, look, God has done everything for you. Now the choice is yours. Just grab the keys and release yourself from your own dungeon of sin. It's all up to your will. You just make the decision. You make, you do it. Jesus doesn't say that. You are a slave, Jesus says, and you can only be free if I set you free. That is the only way that man can be free is if the Son delivers him from his bondage to iniquity and sin so that he can enjoy the freedom that is offered in this passage. If the Son makes you free, then you will be free indeed. This is part of the confessions of the Reformed faith. 
the non, that is, would be non-Catholic faith. The Westminster Confession describes total depravity this way, quote, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability to will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from good and dead in sin, he is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself under, unto conversion, end quote. Man is not able to convert himself. Like a lep- no, no more than a leopard can change its spots can a sinful man stop sinning and reform his ways and change his own heart. You can't do that. We have to have somebody else remove from us a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. We have to have somebody else change our nature so that we love what God wants us to love and we will to do what God wants us to will to do. That has to happen from outside. A heart of stone doesn't transform itself into a heart of flesh. It needs something from outside of itself to remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. We need something to change our nature, to change our spots, to keep stop us from sinning, to turn us from our sin. We need the grace of God in salvation to do that because man in his own sinful heart is not able to do that. Charles Spurgeon said this, though through the fall and through our own sin, the nature of man has become so debased, so depraved, and so corrupt that it is impossible for him to come to Christ without the assistance of God, the Holy Spirit. Man's nature is so corrupt that he has neither the will nor the power to come to Christ unless drawn by the Spirit. End quote. Spurgeon once mockingly said this, Who among us would be able to say, I by my own power have reformed myself? Is there anybody here who is able to say, I by an act of my own decision and my own will, unaided by the Spirit of God entirely, unaided by the grace of God entirely, I changed my own heart, I willed to do it, and I set myself free from sin. Is anybody able to do that? Nobody in his right mind is able to do that. Nobody who understands the grace of God is able to do that. Every true Christian will confess, I can do nothing of myself. Nothing. Nothing. I was entirely dependent upon God. I could come to a point where I recognized what I needed. But I had to call out to God to have that change made because I could not change that. As much as, as much as I might have wanted a change or much as I might have desired a change apart from the grace of God changing me. And listen, even my desire and my want for a change was the work of the Spirit of God. I was unable to change because I lacked that ability. I came to understanding I'm a sinner. And I I am in a horrible situation before God because if I die right now, I am in horrible trouble. I mean horrible trouble. And I knew that and I understood that, but I could not change my heart. I could not change my heart of stone into a heart of flesh and love God. You and I, in our unsaved, fallen state, are totally depraved. Now listen to what I mean by totally. By totally depraved, we mean that our depravity, our fallenness, affects every element of our being. Total depravity does not mean that that man is as bad or as wicked as he could be. It doesn't mean that man is devoid of all qualities which are pleasing to others. For instance, you will run across unbelievers who are generous, they're gracious, they're kind, they're loving, they treat their wife good, they they treat their kids good. In the eyes of most people, they're not bad people. They're not out robbing churches on the weekends and things like that. They're just, you know, they can be pleasing people. Not every sinner that you meet who is an unbeliever is an Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein or a rapist. None of that. It doesn't mean that man is devoid of any qualities which are good and pleasing. Because there are sinners who are, that have certain qualities. Nor does it mean that man is as intensively evil as it is possible for him to be. Listen, there are ways in which Hitler was a good guy. You realize that? Hitler spared some French villages at the request of their priest. 
Hitler treated his mistress nicely. Hitler fed his dog. He was a nice guy in some ways. There are some qualities about Hitler we say, well, he's, the guy's not all bad. I mean, Hitler wasn't all bad. Am I trying to justify what Hitler did? No, not at all. But listen, Hitler was not as evil as he could have been. Hitler wasn't even close to as evil as he could have been. He wasn't. It doesn't, total depravity does not mean that man is as intensively evil as it is possible for him to be. Total depravity means that man is as extensively evil as it is possible to be. That is, that I am evil in every capacity of my being. If sin were the shade or the color blue, every element of my being would have been some shade of blue. So that my mind was affected, my heart was affected, my will was affected, my nature was affected, my thoughts, my affections, my loves, everything that I did, every decision that I make, every element of my flesh, every part of Jim Osmond was some shade of blue or some degree of sin. I was extensively evil. That is, there is no, there was no molecule or atom or immaterial part of me that was not affected by the fall in some way and to some degree, and in fact, totally. That's what total depravity means. It doesn't mean that the man is as bad as he could be. It means that man is as bad off as he can be. That is, he lacks the ability to change anything because he is as hopeless as is possible for him to be. It doesn't mean that man could not commit a worse crime. Hitler could have committed worse crimes. But it does mean that Hitler could do nothing good before God, which was deserving of salvation or able to reform or change his heart. That is what total depravity means. We are completely unable in ourselves to change anything. So Scripture says that our minds were darkened, our understanding was darkened, our affections were misplaced, that our heart is an idol factory of idols of the heart. Prophet Ezekiel speaks of that. That we hate the things that God loves and we love the things that God hates. That we are enslaved to our lusts and our passions. That the way we think is of the world, that we are in the kingdom of darkness, that we belong to Satan, that Satan is our father, that we are locked in darkness, that we are enslaved to sin, that we drink iniquity like water. Scripture describes all of that of the unsaved man. But somehow we are supposed to believe that man's will is gloriously untouched by the fall. That man is free. His will is still in that condition that it was back in the Garden of Eden, untouched and unaffected by the fall. Man's will is gloriously free. Paul uses the terminology of bondage. Peter uses the terminology of bondage. Jesus speaks of slavery, and Arminian Christians speak of free will. There's a radical difference between those two theologies. Man is not free. Our will in an unsaved state is not free. We are the doulos of sin. We are slaves of sin. Our will is not free. Now when I say that man was created with a free will, is that true or false? True or false? Nod your head if you think it's true. Shake your head if you think it's false. I do this just to keep you engaged in what I'm saying. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. There is a germ of truth in it. Here's the germ of truth. Adam was created with free will. But are you and I like Adam? No, you and I are nothing like Adam. To somehow equate our condition today with Adam's condition before the fall is of the worst of theologies. Something radical, drastic, and in human terms irreparable happened to Adam when he sinned. And thus that was passed down to all of Adam's progeny. 
So that Adam became darkened in his understanding. Adam became hostile to God. Adam had a hatred for God and a hatred for the light and a hatred for the truth. Adam learned to love darkness and had a love for darkness after the fall. And Adam's sin uh, will was no longer free. None of the descendants of Adam have ever been born with a free will ever. You and I, do we have free wills? We have wills which are now free... But they are what? They are pulled like a force of gravity towards sin. But you and I can choose not to sin. An unbeliever cannot do that. You and I can choose to do righteousness. We can choose obedience. That is something an unbeliever cannot do. There are certain things no unbeliever can do. No unbeliever can choose righteousness. He cannot choose to love God. He cannot choose to follow God. He cannot choose to repent. He cannot choose to give up sinning. He cannot choose anything which would please God because he is unable to do so. He lacks the ability because he does not have the will to submit himself to the law of God. Now you say, but Jim, we make choices all the time, don't you? You made choices today. In fact, you you are going to make thousands of choices, tens of thousands of choices, most of which, 99% of which you are not even going to be consciously aware of between today and next week at this time. You are going to make tens of thousands of choices. Do you choose? You choose all day long. You choose thousands of times a day. But listen, the fact that you choose tells us nothing about the nature of your choices or what drives those choices. Of course fallen man chooses. He chooses things all day long. He chooses with whom to sin, where to sin, when to sin, how much to sin, which sin to commit, what degree of sin. But guess what? He always chooses sin. He can't choose other than to sin. Why is that? Because man always chooses to do exactly what he wants to do. And guess what he wants to do? Sin. And so man always acts in accordance with his nature. He always chooses to do exactly what he wants to do. And his every choice is an expression of his nature. And what is the problem with our nature? It is corrupt. Right to the very core it is corrupt. Every element of fallen man's nature is corrupt. It loves darkness. It hates light. It wars against God. It is fallen and depraved and wicked and horribly corrupt right to its very core. So if man always does what is in accordance with his nature, and his nature is corrupt, guess what he is always going to choose? Sin. What do you and I need? We need to be set free from our corrupt nature so that we can choose to do what God calls us to do. And how does God do that? He sets us free by the truth. When you know the truth, the truth sets you free, and guess what you choose to do? The very first thing you choose to do as a person who has been liberated by the grace of God and set free by Jesus Christ is you choose to submit yourself in obedience and repentance and faith, all of which God grants to you at the moment you believe. God changes our nature, sets us free, we repent and we believe, and we are saved all in an instant. But something must happen before I'm able to do any of those things. I must what? Must have my heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in so that I do the thing which is pleasing to God because in myself, without a change of nature, and without being set free by Jesus, I don't have the ability to do that. I cannot do that. I can hear the commands and the demands of the gospel all day long, but I have no ability to obey because I have no will to obey. I don't want obedience to God. In my unsafe state, obedience to Jesus Christ was the furthest thing from my mind and my heart. 
I wanted to run as far and as fast away from him as I could possibly get in any day's time. I didn't want obedience. I didn't want holiness and I didn't want righteousness. All I wanted was sin and I chose sin every opportunity that I could. And guess what? Even when I choose to do something nice, you say, didn't you ever thank your mom on Mother's Day? Yeah, well, wasn't that a nice thing? It was a nice thing, right? But does that mean it wasn't sinful? Even my desire to thank my mom on Mother's Day as an unbeliever was nothing more than an expression of my sinfulness. It was in my best interest to do so, and so I did so. I thanked her. It was always the opportunity she stopped cooking and cleaning and doing my laundry. So I thanked her. And every, even the expression of the things that I did which are good were tainted by sin. But it was always an expression of my nature. My nature was corrupt. Your nature was corrupt. And you, just like I, was a slave of sin. Now, to what are men enslaved? You say, to sin, obviously, generally. But think of all the different sins which hold men captive. Drunkenness, adultery, lust, fornication, pornography, gluttony, pride, bitterness, resentment, self-reliance, self-assurance, reputation. All of those things are sins which hold men captive. The number, of, the number of ways in which man is a slave to sin is only limited by the number of sins, and there are a lot of sins. But all men, this is true, all men are enslaved to sin, and we are held captive by all of those things to which we are enslaved, and man in himself is unable to set himself free from any of those sins. And do you realize how horrible of a taskmaster sin is? It's a horrible taskmaster, because sin demands everything. And it doesn't like any competition. And sin will never set you free. It never sets its slaves free. And guess what sin ultimately does to its slaves? It kills them. That's what sin ultimately does to its slaves. It never sets them free, and eventually sin will kill them. That's why you and I must be rescued by somebody outside of us. And sin crushes its victims. In our unsafe state, we are like people chained in, in, in shackles to a rotting wall. And every sin that we commit and every sinful choice that we make tightens up the shackles just a little bit until ultimately those shackles are so tight and so constricting that sin crushes its victim. That is what sin does. It is a relentless taskmaster. And the worst of all things about sin is that it blinds its victims so that those who are slaves of sin don't even know that they're slaves of sin. I was just watching a video last night of uh, 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 it was Way of the Master and it was out doing one-on-one street encounters and one of the men, uh, it was Ray Comfort, he said to one of the guys that he was interviewing while he was street preaching, he said, you can't turn from your sin because you're a slave of sin. And the guy with, an al- with a beer in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand standing there said, I'm not a slave to sin. And I wish I could get that as a bulletin cover or something. I'm not a slave to sin. Every sin denies he's a slave. Every sinner denies he's a slave to sin and every slave denies he's a slave. Because... Sin is so deceitful that it actually blinds us to our own bondage. If you had asked me before I was saved if I was a slave of sin, I would have said, no, not at all. I can choose to do whatever sin I want to. Sin doesn't ever tell me which sin to commit. I do that freely. I'm not a slave to it because sin doesn't tell me what to do. I tell my sin what to do. Blinded to our own sin and our own depravity. The other thing about sin as a taskmaster is that, and and you will notice this, the people who are burdened under the most vices are the people who will proclaim their own freedom the loudest. People who live their lives under the most vices will proclaim their own freedom the loudest. Let me give you an example of this. People in our culture want freedom to view pornography whenever they want, however they want, as much as they want, and they want freedom to do that. 
And any restriction that you put on that, and they want to protect it under the guise of free speech, any restriction that you put on that, or any moral constraint which you might suggest to people which should reign in their lusts, they will view as a restriction upon their what? Their freedom. I want my free speech. I want my freedom to express my lusts however I want, whenever I want, without any consequences. That's what the world views as true freedom. It is the worst of slaveries. And what sin promises, sin always promises liberty and it brings us bondage. Sin always promises life and it brings us death. And people who think they are the freest because they can express the lusts of their flesh without any inhibitions, that's what they view as freedom. And that is nothing more than the worst of servitudes. And even if it is licentiousness and living a licentious lifestyle and expressing their lusts and their desires however they want, they want the freedom to do that without any inhibitions, without any moral constraints. And if you so much as suggest that there is a moral standard out there of right and wrong that should limit how they express their lusts, you will be shouted down as somebody who is trying to restrict their freedom. And they, what they view as an expression of their liberty is nothing more than them acting out their bondage. Isn't that ironic? What they view as an expression of their liberty is nothing more than them living out the bondage to sin. Sin is a horrible taskmaster. Another reason why sin is a horrible taskmaster is because you cannot get away from it. Is he a tyrant on earth or a taskmaster here on earth or a slave owner on earth? You can run from them, right? You can escape like Onesimus did, Philemon. You can run away. You can go across the border. You can go to another country. You can get another owner. You can always try and flee a horrible taskmaster here in an earthly sense. But can you run from sin? It's like running from the clothes that you're wearing, right? You take off. And you get somewhere else. And you look down and realize... My clothes are still with me. I'm going to start running again. You can't run from sin because it follows you. Because sin is, in, sin is internal. Sin is part of the nature and the fabric. And so you can express your lust and receive pleasure. And the pleasure fades. And guess what remains? The sin remains. And the sin is there always expressing its demands and barking out its, its commands and inflicting its punishments. And you can't run from it because it is always there. It is the worst of taskmasters. And the irony, there's an irony in this. Those who express their bondage call it liberty. And they look at those of us like those of us who are here who live a holy life of self-denial and loving righteousness and pursuing holiness and fighting against the flesh and mortifying sin and putting sin to death and, and seeking to pursue righteousness and holiness in our conducts and restraining our evil desires which are still part of our sinful flesh. They look at those things as being the worst of burdens, the worst of chains. Boy, that is a horrible express, that is a horrible restriction on your liberty, right? Your freedom. You should have the freedom to express yourself, not restrain yourself. They look at those who pursue righteousness as being under the bond of slavery to church or tradition or the pastor or legalism or the Bible or whatever it is. And yet we know better, don't we? We know that there is no liberty like the liberty of being free from sin because we do not answer its beck and call. We have the choice. I can choose righteousness and I can choose obedience. I don't have to serve sin anymore. And you don't have to serve sin anymore. That is true liberty. That's true liberty. That is what it means when Jesus said, the Son will set you free. Now why is it that we would hammer all of this out and go to so much detail on what it means to be a slave of sin? A few different reasons. I said last week as we were closing, this has implications for almost every area of theology and every area of life. Right? This affects how we do evangelism. affects how we do evangelism. If you understand how dead man is in his trespasses and sins, you will not be surprised if they mock you and hate you and hurl abuses at you or reject your gospel message. It's unreasonable to them. They're dead. 
They're slaves of sin. They don't want to be set free. They don't have any desire to be set free. They love their iniquity. They drink it like water. They love it to death. And they have no will or no desire to obey righteousness. And so it affects how we do evangelism. Even as a church, how we do evangelism. Do we think that we can, through our lighting or a stage show or a fog machine or something that we do up here, that we can affect man's will in such a way as to set him free from sin? We can't do that. Can you liberate another sinner from his sin? You can't do that. You share the gospel with him. The gospel can liberate that sinner from sin. Jesus can set him free from his sin, but you can't do that. You just share the truth. You share the gospel. And you trust that God, by his grace and by his sovereignty, is going to redeem some whom he has appointed to eternal life. He is going to save them by the power of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. That's what our trust is in. So it affects how we do evangelism. I'm not out there begging for people to change their will. They can't change their will. I'm out there begging for God to redeem and save sinners, and we proclaim the message of truth, which is able to do that. It also has implications for parenting. And just quickly, this could be a whole message in itself, but let me just quickly go over this. Our goal as parents is not to modify our children's behavior. Because all that does is, that doesn't do anything to change the will. We have to understand, my child is born a slave of sin. They need the gospel. They don't need to be trained to obey when people are looking. They need the gospel. They need to have their hearts changed. And until their hearts are changed, they are little wicked rebels who would just as soon strangle you as look at you. And when they come out of the womb, if they were big enough to kill you for a cookie, they would. Their hearts need to be changed because they are desperately wicked. It affects how we do counseling, too. When somebody comes to my office for counseling, I don't counsel unbelievers. I counsel believers. I evangelize unbelievers. They need the gospel. And I will tell people who sit down with me, look, I can give you principles. I can tell you what the truth is. But ultimately, you have no power to obey the truth. You can modify your behavior in certain ways as to eliminate probably a lot of your pain. But ultimately, you need a heart change. And unless your heart is changed, there is no hope for you or what you are going through. What you need is the gospel. You do not need behavior modification. You do not need 10 steps to this and five steps to that and four principles for the other thing. You need your heart changed. And until your heart is changed by God, you're hopeless. I can give you truth, but if you're not a believer, you have no power to obey this. You can try and conform to it, but you would have no power to obey this from the heart in a way that will actually change your life or change your marriage or change your parenting or change anything else. It also has implications for how much we appreciate salvation, and I started with this, and I'll close with this. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. So listen, if this is your view of salvation, that I pretty much had about 99% of it down. I was almost there. I just needed somebody else to pay a price for me. Because in my own will and by my own desires and my own drives and in my own heart, I was almost over the hump, but I just couldn't quite make it. I just needed Jesus to sort of come along and give me a little nudge, and now I'm over and I'm saved thanks to Jesus. If that's your view of salvation, then how much do you really think you will love Jesus? You're going to want to just give him a knuckle bump. Thanks for helping me over. But listen, if you view yourself as an absolute wretched worm, deserving of the wrath of God, unable to change your own heart, a heart of stone, cold and deaf to His voice, but you realize that God reached in and He changed your nature and your heart so that all of a sudden what you once hated you now loved and what you once loved you now hate and all of a sudden you desire to obey Him and you are able to repent and you are able to believe and you have trusted Christ all because of what God has done for you to rescue you from your horrible, 
fallen, wretched, depraved, and wicked condition, if that is your view of salvation, you will love Him much. You will love Him much. And you will never cease to get over what God has done for you in changing you. You have to appreciate, if you're going to appreciate your salvation, you have to understand what it is that God has delivered you from. And if you do not understand all that it is that God has delivered you from and what He has set you free into, you will never be able to rightly appreciate Him or give Him the glory that He deserves for it. Because you will view yourself as being, in some way, helping Him out, participating in your salvation, when in fact you were slave to sin. And the only reason, if you are free today, the only reason you are free is because the Son has set you free. And if the Son has set you free, you are what? Free indeed. Free indeed. Let's pray. Our God, we do give you thanks and glory and praise and honor and credit for all that you have done for those who are yours. Thank you for setting us free from our sin, for delivering our enslaved will, our enslaved minds, and our enslaved passions into glorious liberty of the sons of God. Thank you for a redemption that is so complete as to not only begin that heart change, but that you will complete what you have begun unto the day of Christ Jesus. And we thank you that our salvation is secure and that it is full and that you have done all that is necessary not only to pay the price for us, but to bring us to your Son, that you might be glorified through our response and that you might be glorified forever for having done all of our salvation. Salvation is not of man, it is of the Lord. And so we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.